I want to say, looking out at this crowd, it's, you're clearly a triumph of policy over politics. You know, some of you may not know Ted Cruz is being interviewed by the Washington Post, Dan Balls, somewhere else. But welcome to the Texas Tribune panel on urban mobility. My name is Rick Casey. I'm the host of the modestly named Texas Week with Rick Casey. It's a 30-week, 30-minute weekly news program on the PBS station in San Antonio. And on behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'd like to welcome welcome you to the fourth annual Texas Tribune Festival. I've had a chance to discuss this topic with all of the uh, of the panel members, and I I think you're going to find it very interesting. Uh, joining me here are three mayors: Mayor Lee Leffingwell of Austin, Mayor Nelda Martinez of Corpus Christi, and uh, my mayor Ivy Taylor of San Antonio. In addition, we have three representatives of companies that represent new models of urban transportation. Daniel Witt is Tesla's policy and business development manager. Uh, Lee Jones is director of sales for B-Cycle, although I'm told you can say B-Cycle if you want. Uh, And Justin Kintz is policy director for the Americas for Uber. Uh, And I suspect most of you know what, what Uber is. Uh, the panel is scheduled for 60 minutes, and we, we want to leave 15 to 20 minutes for, for questions. Uh, with six panels, panelists, obviously, we're going to have to move through it pretty quickly, uh, and I'm going to have to keep my Irish questions short. Uh, I'd like, if you wouldn't mind, to silence your cell phones, if you haven't done so. Those of you who want to tweet, the hashtag is TribuneFest, one word, of course. There's also track-specific hashtag for this event, hashtag uppercase TTF, Transpo. So I'll start with the three mayors uh, to give an overview of their approaches to the issues of urban mobility. Uh, Then we'll go to the representatives of the the three companies. Uh, And I'm not being an expert in political protocol. I've decided to call on the mayors in alphabetical order of the cities that they that they are mayors of. (laughs) So Austin Mayor Lee Leffingwell is well immersed in the issue, having just led a city council to place a $1 billion, one B with a a B with a billion, uh, (laughs) transit proposal on the ballot, including $600 million for urban rail. Mayor, I'd like for you, if you don't mind, to give us a brief outline of the proposal and the, the policy and political considerations that went into it. Brief line, uh, outline of the proposal is uh, $600 million would be the city's share, and we uh, intend to apply for matching funds from the FTA, the Federal Transit Administration. And in fact, the ballot language is worded such that we can't begin construction unless and until we receive that matching grant. So, along with it, and this uh, comports with our general policy that we've been following for several years now, we're going to have. Uh, obligate ourselves to spend $400 million for new road projects. So that policy is a comprehensive policy. We're all in. All modes uh, are important to, uh, to Austin because uh, many of you know that we're the four- fourth most congested city in the United States now. We've lagged behind for many years, and so we have a very big problem in, in this $1 billion with a B a uh, bond proposal is a way to get started in a very big way. Well, you had considerable controversy over the, the route that would be taken. Yeah. If I understand correctly, one route was felt by many people to be more designed 
to serve uh, current groups of, of more dense people, dense, sure. <laughs> dense <Yeah>. populations. <laughs> that, that was a Freudian slip. And the, uh, the, uh, the, my, my Freudian slip is showing, yes. And the, the other route is uh, one designed more to promote development. Is that, is that uh, a fair well, assessment? That's, I think, uh, a, a terrific oversimplification. If I could go through it, first of all... I'm in the all, media. That's my job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> We, uh, we had an advisory group convened to study this issue, and we studied it for well over a year. We went through an ev evaluation process to determine that route that was a data-driven process. In fact, it's the same. We, we mimicked what the FTA uses to evaluate projects that are put before them. So the so-called uh, Lamar Guad route was in there, along with nine other possibilities. We got in and crunched the numbers, examined 55 different factors, and you're right, uh, current ridership was one of those, uh, but it was also future ridership. We're talking 2020 when I say future. It's also uh, current jobs, future jobs, current population, future population. Economic development was a factor, but it was only one of many. And I will say that when we put these on the chart, the ones that floated to the top were the ones we selected. Are going out the northern part of downtown, it goes to ACC Highland, and out the southern part of town, it went to uh, Grove East Riverside. It's a nine and a half mile route. And I want to emphasize that those, we call them subcarters. Those two subcarters really did float to the top in the data driven process. So that's the ones we would have selected regardless of other factors. But in addition to that, the uh, Lamar Guad route has already been awarded uh, a grant by the FTA for bus rapid transit. That was done earlier this year, $38 million to fund 80% of that cost. Uh, the FTA is unlikely, at least in the, in the near term, because this is a 20-year project for them, to evaluate another grant on the same route that they just funded. But in addition to that, there's uh, kind of the killer is that we made the decision early on that this system was going to be in dedicated guideways. That we're going to interact with traffic. It just doesn't work that way. It's not a streetcar. It's a light urban rail system. And it needs to operate the way it's supposed to. It needs to have dedicated guideways. That meant if we looked at Guadalamar, we would reduce those two streets, those two major arterials, to two-lane roads. They're already saturated with the lanes they have, and we just absolutely couldn't do that. But first and foremost, those routes are selected by a data-driven process, the same one that the FTA uses. Now, is it your feeling that in order to get the voters, what, what ballot is this, on the November ballot? November 4th, yes. Okay. In order to get support from all the voters that you need, you, you did need to do more than just the rail. You needed to put in for roads? We have uh, we've had comprehensive multimodal transportation bonds at least since 2010. I sponsored one in 2010. It was much smaller. It was about $90 million. But that was about half bike and ped and about half road improvements. So we've been doing this approach for a long time, and we want to convey that message. This, we're not going to solve our problems by building more rail alone. We're going to have to build more roads. We're going to have to have more bicycle infrastructure and more pedestrian infrastructure. You also so talk all about of these all of these things have to be done. But yes, at the end of the day, 
I think it makes sense if you have a multimodal approach to include several modes in the same package. Now, you, you kind of sounded to me a little bit like a Scottish separatist. You said this, this is your last shot. Oh, I, I, yeah, I've said that before. Yes, I have. Uh, well, the last time we had this kind of proposal before the voters, an urban rail proposer, proposal was in the year 2000. Uh, that's 14 years ago. Uh, so it's taken us 14 years to get back to the point. A lot goes into it. It's just not just a couple of guys sitting down and drawing a line on a map. A lot of things have to be evaluated. A lot of uh, people have to be talked to and brought together uh, to support a, a common cause. So I have said, you know, if we're going to, uh, we're at the point now where we really have to do something in the city of Austin. So if you're going to try to put that process uh, together again, uh, if this proposal fails, it's going to take a number of years. It might take a decade. It might take more than that. Or it might never happen because, honestly, I think if this proposal fails, uh, the situation is so desperate that we're going to have to resort to a roads-only policy, that we'll have to just focus on building roads, and we may never get around to it again. Mm. Well, I, I suspect there are a few people here from Austin, and some of you may have some more specific questions, and, which we will get time to a little bit later. Uh, Corpus Christi Mayor Nelda Martinez presides over a medium-sized city with other issues. Uh, Mayor, you say you have a solid bus system, but street maintenance is a significant problem. So you're, you're basically worrying about that. It just kind of, kind of feels like old-fashioned issues. But you're also taking a very interesting modern approach uh, that we'll talk about, but tell us about the street issues, you, you, how you're funding for more, more street uh, maintenance. Sure. On the maintenance side, we had had calculated and studied and talked about until uh, we just could not kick that can down the road anymore, and it ended up being a billion dollar, with a B, uh, problem that we had with street maintenance. And what happened, and since the 80s and the oil bust, we had cut our maintenance or streets in half. So compounding over 30 years and uh, also knowing that inflation had uh, certainly increased the cost. Also, we know with a better economy, we have more competitive as far as the materials and that's uh, the workforce as well. And so we finally got to a point where we stood strong and have an excellent council that had the political courage to put in a street maintenance fee. And we looked at also Austin, who had had that a few years ago. And with that said, that's been put in place. But in addition to for the street maintenance fee, we started with that first. And the reason we started with that first, of course, is because you want to maintain what you have before it gets to a point that it costs more for reconstruction. Transportation gets me too excited. Sorry. <laughs> Anyway, and so we did the transportation. So the next was we started these bond projects as far as where we had bond capacity. And every four years, we were having bond elections to reconstruct the arterials and the collector streets. And that has been worked, worked out very, very well. And then we also have put new standards and codified an ordinance to make accountability the contractors for metrics and standards of those streets that if they're not built in a workmanlike manner, then there's punitive consequences. So that now is in place as well. And then we've accelerated it. Now we're doing bond projects every two years. 
And so we have those three quadrants that we're dealing with, and now we're having to deal with our street residential, which is about an $800 million problem in a city population of about 315,000. And what's really been interesting about that is everyone's come to the table. Before I ran for mayor, we were uh, a couple of years ahead of our industrial district contracts expiring. And I thought out of courtesy to those in industry, I would tell them, the leaders, that I wanted them, even though technically they were outside of our city limits, being an industrial district, that I felt it was critical that they contribute to the street solution because of the 18-wheelers, the vendors, the employees, and how they impacted our streets. And through negotiations, it was uh, many moving parts that ended up being a win-win situation. And so those funds now are going to go to capital projects once they come into effect in 2015 towards residential streets. And another portion is going to go to help with the the maintenance part. Real quickly, the wonks want to know the fee, how much is it and who pays it? It's $5.39 for the residential. And is that like on top of your garbage bill? Or is that, and that's yeah, the that's same in your utility bill. It's in, uh-huh. utility bill. It's and, in every single utility bill. And how about the, uh, the industrial one? It's based on square footage and use mm-hmm. on the commercial side. Okay. Well, on the industrial, that was just negotiated in a formula in the industrial district contract. Mm-hmm. But in all of the commercial side of our businesses, those were based on square footage and what type of business okay. that they had. And we came up with an equitable formula after pulling out my hair was black before we started the process. <laughs> I, I, I want to go quickly into this other area, though. I think uh, you and Mayor Taylor might be sisters in, in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you mentioned that one of the problems you have doing any kind of mass transit is that you don't have nodes of mass groups of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you've taken an interesting new approach to, to try and promote what a lot of people call the new urbanism or smart growth. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Well, we, uh, we have been bold in two ways. We started off with the Corpus Christi Mobility Project, and we have five different nodes around the city to where we are addressing uh, not only... Uh, the pedestrian coexisting well with the transit and with the, you know, the vehicular, but also the cyclist. And we're also doing road, di- road diets as well, you know, the four lane, putting them down into three and trying to affect the safety. And also working in partnership with uh, our regional transportation authority and trying to get more vehicles off the street and trying to reduce our carbon footprint. And also in denser areas, try to build a critical mass to where you will have uh, people who can cycle to work, put more rooftops in downtown where you have existing infrastructure underneath your streets where you don't have to incorporate the the sprawl effect where you add more to the taxpayer and passing that through and the sustainability as well. But also your built environment is so, so critical and also the health of a community. So if you have pedestrian-friendly also cycling-friendly within your mobility and connectivity, then you're also going to have a healthier community. What particularly interests me was you indicated that you have, I think what you said was you privatized your planning department. Oh, that's the second bold thing. Okay, that was the first bold thing that we did with CC Mobility. But also we had very antiquated 
master plans for planning of our city. And I will tell you, we Is just, it politic to say you were living in the dark ages? We, no, you're exactly right. That's why we were bold and we made a bold move because I felt like I was being drug out of a cave by my hair. And, uh, <laughs> but with that said, the, the good news is we made a very bold move that was not politically popular. You're going to make the engineers, you're going to make some people and contractors who depend on this type of business from the city, who used to work within the system as it was antiquated, uh, made them mad when we put privatized our whole planning department. We have Goody Clancy, and they literally are doing a comprehensive plan, and it's very timely because we're going to have the largest uh, national bridge of significance in the whole Western Hemisphere. It's about a billion-dollar project that also is going to be built, new location, and it's going to open up a new area of revitalization for our city. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Mayor Taylor has been mayor, what, two months yes. now? Uh, <laughs> she was voted by her colleagues to replace Julian Castro, who went off to be secretary of HUD, and she has stepped into immediately into a couple of large puddles. One of them was... <laughs> a 3.2 mile, was it, a, a, a streetcar system for downtown that had been developed and had some political backing among some elected officials, uh, in, including the county judge and, and the former mayor, but was very, very unpopular among, among the uh, general populace. It was a standalone project. Uh, I think a week or two after she was mayor, she called a press conference with the county judge and pulled their plugs on the, pulled the plug on the project which was actually quite a popular decision. The, the, the system had not been sold as to who would ride it, how well it would work, uh, compared to how much it cost. My question, I guess, first one is, what are the lessons you learned from watching that up close and having to make that tough decision with all of two weeks under your belt as the mayor of San Antonio? Well, I have to start out by um, saying that I'm an urban planner. That's my background, so it really wasn't... Um, the place that I wanted to be, the urban planner coming as mayor and pulling the plug on. Uh, I, I should have mentioned she went to Yale undergraduate in North Carolina for a master's in urban planning, yes. So, yeah, so that wasn't really the script I would have written for myself to have to come in and pull the plug on our um, on the rail project because also the other thing is that I grew up in New York and I've been in Texas since 1998. So someone as someone who grew up in a city where there was obviously mass transit readily available, I look forward to the day where I would be able to have another mode of transportation besides driving or taking the bus in San Antonio. But I quickly realized uh, via about 20,000 signatures on some petitions that um, the, the project was extremely, extremely unpopular. And uh, I didn't really see um, where we would be able to build on it, which I think the folks who who started the project thought this would be a way where we could kind of get our foot in the door in relation to rail and that once we had it that folks would realize how great it was and then they would agree to but build there was out a danger a that system. it wouldn't be successful yes in there was case, a danger yeah. that it wouldn't be successful because the the routes hadn't been um, there was a, there were a lot of questions about the selection of the routes and um, there was a lot of uh, chatter in the community that really it would just be used by tourists and people didn't really see it as relevant to their transportation needs. Well, you you also promised uh, that your, your colleagues on council that you would not stand for mayor in May. Uh, she is being urged to reconsider that by, by quite a few people, I think. But uh, that hasn't stopped. You had said you won't be a caretaker mayor. And in terms of urban mobility, 
connectivity. You've, you've already laid in process some, some pretty big plans. I would call them almost the, the uh, a certain kind of infrastructure, but not the kind we think of. Well, we, it, the timing was great in that we were gearing up to do a comprehensive uh, master plan for our city, which we really haven't had anything like that since the 1970s in San Antonio. We did some master plan policies in 1997, but we have not had a real data-driven, comprehensive look at our, um, our growth patterns and our land use and combine that with what our vision uh, is for the city. So uh, I kind of took the reins there and, and really tried to highlight this process and also steer the process. One of my colleagues is in the audience, Councilman Ron Nirenberg, and he's been helping me on that. I appointed him as chair of a city council committee to actually focus on comprehensive planning. So that was a big deal. And then we're also putting together uh, an advisory board comprised of many of the institutions that have an impact on our growth to help um, help us through the process of developing the plan. We're also developing a citizens planning institute so that we can get more folks engaged in the process and thinking and talking about what planning means in relation to their daily lives. So you're, you're actually trying to set up a, a structure that will create both a plan but also a, a culture in which the yes. seeds that are sown can, can blossom. Yes. If, I, if I understand correctly, part of your plan is, like many Sunbelt cities, San Antonio is heavily sprawled. Throughout the 70s and 80s, there was one major builder who built 50% of the new houses, all of them outside city limits, as a matter of corporate policy. And those all became annexed, but the sprawl is, is terrific. I understand you're looking for a plan that will make mass transit work by building density as opposed to trying to just pull out mass transit and hope that that makes density happen. Exactly, and I think we can, we can build on what we have in place. Um, we have... Uh, kind of a polycentric model. You know, it's not just the old-fashioned everyone go at this downtown as the center of things. We have several centers spread throughout the city, and we need to look at those as opportunities for them not to just be employment centers or housing centers, but figure out how we can have employment, housing, retail, and all those centers, and that will make uh, transit more feasible. Okay. All right, well, let's look at some of the, the uh, private sector innovations that are, that are going on. Uh, Lee Jones is director of B-Cycle. Uh, it's a bike-sharing operation. Most of you probably are familiar with it. it. has operations in Austin, Houston, San Antonio, and Fort Worth. They're working on Dallas. Uh, Lee, briefly uh, tell us how it works for those who don't know and how big it has become in Texas cities. Well, it's become huge in Texas. In fact, I think one of the facts I like to point out that the state that has the most bike-share systems in operation is the state of Texas. And I think five years ago, if we had predicted this uh, when we launched in Denver, I, um, I wouldn't have believed it. Um, but from our beginning in San Antonio in 2011, uh, which was then followed in 2012 by Fort Worth and the city of Houston, and then most recently in the fall of 2013 uh, here in the city of Austin, it, it's been phenomenal. Uh, another really interesting tidbit, as I was mentioning uh, to the mayor here in Austin, is the record for usage of bike share bikes is, used to be held by New York City. Uh, but there's an event that takes place here in February that brings just a few people <laughs> into Austin. 
And there were actually, at South by Southwest, we had 10 rides per bike per day. So it, it's been phenomenal in terms of how all of these cities have embraced um, bike share uh, for many, many different reasons. Uh, in San Antonio, we see a strong uh, tourist component. In, uh, in Houston, we see a strong uh, convention visitors uh, component of business. Here in, in Austin, there, there's a tremendous that takes place in terms of people using it as a form of, uh, a form of transportation. But one of the unique things about B-Cycle in the state of Texas and most communities around the country is we're big believers in strong leadership, obviously, at City Hall, but more importantly, strong uh, involvement at the community level. So in any one of our cities, you will see typically a nonprofit that is operating that, or, uh, that organization in partnership with the city. And that's, that's the case uh, pretty much all the way through here in the state of Texas, as well as many other locations around the country. Real quickly, the way it works is I pay $80 a year as one, one plan, mm -hmm. and then I can ride a bike for an hour before having to park it into another station Correct. With, uh, without paying any additional fee. And then there's a fee if I go over the hour. Correct. One of the things I found interesting, you told me that we've heard of park and ride, that your bicycle systems in many cities are setting up ride and park. Exactly, where people Explain will, that. will in terms of driving a car, right. the whole ride and, ride, ride and park concept. So in, in Spartanburg, South Carolina, it's interesting, it's a community of about 35,000 people. People will actually drive to uh, parking lots in the downtown area. There's not a tremendous amount of traffic congestion in a city like Spartanburg but they will utilize a parking lot and then couple that with a bike ride to kind of get them into the day and then more importantly, I guess, kind of help them de uh, decompress. And, and maybe the not the pay day. the parking fee they might have to and pay if they got closer a in. A little bit closer to their place of employment. So exactly. you're telling me in San Antonio, for example, many of you know about the Pearl Brewery development just north of downtown. A lot of people apparently park there free, hop on the bicycle, take it downtown, uh, and at the end of the day, go back to their, their car with exactly. another bicycle. Exactly. Okay. Um, you, you, one of the things I would imagine many people would be worried about is you've got all these amateurs riding these bikes in urban situations, and obviously we're going to have, you must have incredible insurance policies to deal with that. Oh, massive insurance policies. It's, it's a de definite requirement. Um, you know, one, one of the basic uh, things I think we were talking about uh, before today's session was the the level of responsibility most people have with bike share. Um, knock on wood, uh, we, we've not had in any of the systems around the United States any issues in terms of, of fatalities. Uh, we consistently hear that people riding bike share bikes are not flying down sidewalks and endangering pedestrians. They're actually watching traffic signals and, be, you know, and, and adhering to uh, the traffic signals and the rules of the road. And every person that chooses to either sign up for an annual membership or to use a credit card to access the system as a day user takes on the responsibility not only for that product but also for adhering to the road. Plus there's signage on the bikes and on the stations to kind of reinforce that with them. Okay, time seems to be flying. Uh, I'm sure some of you may have some questions for each of these people as well. Um, Justin Kintz is policy director for the, uh, for the Americas for Uber. Uh, he describes himself, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Explain to people who haven't used it yet, although I think it's pretty popular here in Austin, sir, uh, how Uber works. Absolutely. So Uber is magic. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I think you told yeah. me that it's revolutionizing urban, the, fabric, the fabric of urban transportation. I, I want to hear more about that. Yeah. 
And when I say it's magic, uh, it's really a magical experience. You, you take out your smartphone, you open the app, the Uber app, and you hit a button and you get a car. A car pulls up. Uh, a car pulls up in usually five to six minutes. And it's not just any kind of car. It's, it's a clean, well-serviced, sometimes stylish car uh, with a really polite, friendly driver that provides great service to you and takes you where you need to go. You just hop out of the vehicle, and at that point, your credit card, which has been preloaded into the app, is charged. It's a seamless transaction. You immediately get a receipt for your ride with a, a detailed description and a map of where your trip took place. You get the opportunity to rate the driver, and you basically go on your way. Um, forgot to mention that the price is the most exciting part. It's a very affordable way of getting around town. Um, in many cities, we've gotten to the place where we're cheaper than a taxi in some cases, 30 35% cheaper than a taxi. In San Francisco, we've just introduced our newest product, Uber Pool, which is a similar way of sharing a ride, basically, your, your classic ride-sharing model uh, or carpool model, in which case we can get the price of transportation down to something that's competing actually with public transportation and in some cases being cheaper than public transportation. Now, in virtually every city that you've gone into in the United States, and I don't know how it is, you're in... What, 37 other countries as well? Oh, nearly 50 now. No, yeah. nearly 50. When we talked last week, it was 37. It was, I think it was an hour yeah. ago. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I, uh, in the United States, it, it, we're not surprised. You're getting into a service that has traditionally been uh, served by a highly regulated industry, and these folks are not happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it appears to me that your business plan is to go into a city and basically ignore their laws, uh, while building up a very large fan base uh, and, and that you are well served by people's historically based feeling about taxicab companies, uh, but that in the meantime, you offer to pay the fines for your drivers when they get the $50 fine or whatever they are when the police choose to enforce it. Uh, am, I, am I wrong about that business plan? Well, let me unpack the question a little oh, bit. Okay. We'll, we'll start with... Um, with the opposition, which is a, a very vocal minority, but I should stress that it's, a, it's largely a minority because there are so many people who are so excited to get Uber in their city, whether it be consumers or drivers themselves who uh, are looking to improve their lives and, and make more money. We're creating 50,000 jobs, uh, driver jobs, globally a month, 50,000 a month. When uh, our CEO announced in May we were creating 20000 a month. We thought that was a big deal. Now we're at 50000 four just, months later. With a little bit of economics program, I do, background, I do want to point out that you know, a lot of those riders and those drivers are, otherwise might be riding on a cab. So you might be creating some jobs, but you're also taking some away. Well, I, I would disagree in that, in that aspect because I think we've seen that we're growing out the, the overall transportation pie for the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen an entire new market segment emerge for folks who want to use this transportation who wouldn't otherwise use a taxi, perhaps. Um, but for those taxi jobs where there, is, there might be some sort of overlap, we've seen a lot of taxi drivers see this as a better opportunity for their lives. And they'll either come over to drive with UberX or Uber Black uh, exclusively, or sometimes they'll drive a taxi uh, for part of the day, and then they'll go over and drive UberX for the other part of the day. Um, but on your other points uh, as to our business model and our growth strategy, um, our strategy is, is such on Uber Black in which we actually have to fit into existing commercial code. We use commercially licensed, commercially insured limo drivers in that model, and we use the technology to improve their business. And that's actually an already regulated entity. 
And then UberX is what we call our, our rideshare model. There's a rideshare industry of some other players in it. Uh, Lyft and Sidecar are some of the other notable examples. And in that version, um, that's such an innovative new business model where you have just kind of anybody, guys like you and me, if we have a driver's license and we can pass a very rigorous background check uh, and then are then backed up by a million-dollar commercial liability insurance policy, we can use our own personal asset, our own vehicle, to go out and conduct some trips during the week and make a little extra money. And that model is, is just something that we haven't seen before. And so because of that, um, we're able to launch into new markets. And when we get into those markets, we say, if you'd like to set up a regulatory structure that accounts for public safety, great. We're already there with you. We want that, too. Uh, we'd rather not try to in- entertain any kind of regulations that protect incumbents against competition, because we don't believe in that. We're pro-competition. Uh, we're, we're running out of our share, my, you know, not, instead of their share of the time. So I will invite uh, anybody who cares to to ask the mayors of Austin and San Antonio how they're reacting to to the, this melding in of the, this uh, in the negotiations that are going on. Uh, Daniel Witt is Tesla's policy and business development manager. He he uh, describes himself as a mass transit guy working for an auto company. His background is in mass transit. Uh, Daniel, I have to tell you that when, when Evan Smith asked me to do this panel and I was given the list, I called him up and I said, you know, I understand Tesla's, there's a fabulous, a fabulous car, and I was thinking about writing a check for $90,000 to get one of them. And then I found out that it would be another $5,000 to set up the charging stuff in my garage. But uh, uh, I was trying to figure out what, <laughs> what this had to do with urban transportation. So that's, that's the beginning. Uh, so the fact of the matter is, is last year in the state of Texas, there were about 1.2 million vehicles sold, new vehicles sold. Uh, of that percentage, more than 70% were sold in the nine counties that represent uh, the Texas Triangle, the major cities, as well as San Antonio. Um, personal transportation, personal vehicle travel is not going away. And while it's important, and I wholeheartedly agree with comprehensive solutions that embrace uh, bicycle as well as mass transit, uh, we need to continue to look at uh, the automobile uh, and the advancements that can be made in uh, automotive uh, technology uh, to better the, the urban landscape and, frankly, urban mobility as well. Mm-hmm. So that's why. But there are actual infrastructure issues. And, you know, like somebody said, well, we're going to have to have stations around the city, but that's not exactly, exactly the way you see it. No, it's, it's a little bit of a nuanced issue, but the fact of the matter is, is you can't paint uh, all electric vehicles with the same brush. Uh, most electric vehicles uh, that are offered in the market today uh, are somewhere between 80 and 100 miles of range. Uh, they're compact or subcompact models. Uh, very good for urban travel, actually, uh, but strictly within that, that, in, in that environment. Most Texans aren't necessarily with, uh, living in that environment. It's something that uh, we aspire to, frankly, but the, most Texans are traveling significant distances, and what uh, Tesla offers you is 300 miles of range. What that enables you to do is to get from your home to your destination and then back home. But it, what he means is from your home to your ranch. Right, your home to your ranch, exactly. <laughs> and the idea is, is that I mean, most Tesla drivers, and there are there well over 30... 30,000 at this point, are doing about 90% of their charging in their own home, having to set up their own infrastructure. And it ranges from being very inexpensive, 
uh, especially if you have a newer, uh, a, a newer house, a newer residence that plans for you to have things like a dryer, another appliance uh, that, that actually takes a lot of uh, power in your garage. Uh, to being very expensive for, for older properties. And this is something that, frankly, uh, there sh I believe there should be a larger discussion on in terms of... But, and there's uh, also the issue that uh, if you live in an apartment building... There is, yes. And that's a significant piece of the pie, uh, particularly as we talk about an urbanization movement which is trying to draw more people into uh, a concentrated and dense structure uh, where there might not be the opportunity to have lots of parking spaces. And so the question really does become uh, how, how if... If you believe that electric vehicles have a place uh, in the t transportation space, if you believe that, frankly, it's a growing piece of the pie, uh, at least in the automotive section, then how do you plan for that? And as I said, there are a lot of vehicles which operate in this 80 to 100 mile range, but we believe at Tesla that the transition is to vehicles that are much more comparable in range to a standard automobile. There is a vastly different charging profile associated with vehicles of a longer range that frankly, with the right planning for at, a, at a municipal level, could result in much less uh, money being invested towards infrastructure, charging infrastructure, uh, in places where it might not be as necessary, and frankly, more where it, where, more where it needs to be, such as multi-unit law. So you, you're probably too young to have had the... Yes, if you would start lining up for questions, that'd be great. We'll start in just a minute. Uh, you would... Uh, you, you would like... You haven't had the experience yet of actually working with city officials to make some of these things happen? We're, I, no, frankly, I, I mean, the, the short answer is we're, we're a small company. Um, right. I, I, we're a growing company. We, when I started three years ago, we had about 1,400 employees, and now we're about 8,000. But most of those are in manufacturing and engineering. So we haven't had the opportunity to engage at the municipal level with lots of cities, uh, even as they might be willing to in engage with us on, on these sort of broader planning efforts. But we're more but, than willing. And by the way, I, I do want to say that uh, I really appreciate him having the courage to come to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> why, why are you laughing? <laughs> All right, let's begin with the questions. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, thank you, Rick. Um, and, uh, Mayor, thanks for all that you do for this town. This is, I know people saw me coming up here and they went, oh, here comes Gerald with, with Mayor Leffingwell. <clears throat> I do appreciate the job that you do for this community. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 Justin, thank you very much uh, for what Uber uh, is bringing to a community, which, quite frankly, I mean, is pretty exciting. And a lot of people would think, here's a 64-year-old, that's just waiting for it to become legal, so that I can so I can get uh, a ride. But I appreciate that and and the you're, and the biking. You're, you remind me of Bill Buckley going out in international waters to smoke a joint just to see what it was like. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a quick question. I mean, and this is something that everybody can answer quickly. Perhaps uh, the non-mayors may not uh, be able to answer this as quickly. Here's the problem that I have with Tesla. Everybody falling all over themselves for for this mega company and the jobs might justify it. Tesla is an automobile, and an automobile needs a lane mile. And lane miles are paid for with gasoline tax. Mm -hmm. Although the numbers are small right now with electric vehicles, I mean, at some point in time, we've got to find out how do they get in the game to help for, to pay for street repairs and just building of roads. So I'd like to know how everybody feels about how do we get Tesla 
to belly up to the bar and do the thing that the rest of us with automobiles are doing. Well, I'll tell you that I want to encourage innovation, and I want to encourage um, certainly reducing the carbon footprint. And frankly, I like the idea of non-combustible engines to where if you add up every time I take my car for the maintenance and you put all those numbers together in the end, you're going to be able to afford one, Rick, even though you might have to put that little charging <laughs> I'm, I'm station. I'm holding out for the $35,000. Okay. <laughs> uh, but with that said, uh, it, we haven't indexed the gasoline tax, uh, which was a direct impact in trying to address transportation costs. We're $5 billion behind. It's compounding every single year in the state. But with that said, uh, we have to have accountability with our legislators and give them cover and ideas how we can be have the political courage to deal with some other uh, dedicated revenue streams. You know, this Proposition 1, which I hope does pass, is going to $1.7 billion, taking out not a tax increase, but there's talk right now about a vehicle um, sales tax uh, on the purchase of a vehicle. To add to that, there's many other models that are out there, and also vehicle registration fees and also uh, impact fees and also increasing and get it up to the inflationary measures on the gasoline tax. But I don't think because we're just so – it needs to be not only dependent on a gasoline tax. That's our problem. And you don't want to say, okay, we don't want electric cars because the gasoline tax is not doing its job. My God, we want – things that are going to reduce our carbon footprint, that are going to bring in new jobs, and that are going to be environmentally uh, accountable. So with that said, we just have to work with our legislators and make sure we get some more dedicated revenue streams and uh, keep it simple. Because there's so many things that were stuck on the wall at the last legislative session, and no one could come to any agreement on dealing with this 35-year-old problem, crisis. So with that said, I'd say let's go with our legislators. Yeah, I, I think I, obviously I agree with Mayor Martinez. We have to look for another source of funding. It's not just Tesla. Mm -hmm. uh, there's all kinds of modes of transportation mm -hmm. that are going to be taking up road dollars. You know, I, I happen to be a member of the Capital Area Metropolitan Planning Organization through which all federal and state funds flow for roads primarily, but also all, all transportation modes. There's a mass transit component. And the policy is that all new roads will include an additional 15% to accommodate bicycles and also to accommodate pedestrians. Those aren't accounted for by the uh, gasoline tax either. And there's lots of other vehicles, uh, not only um, you know, electric vehicles, other electric vehicles or hybrids, but all the, all the vehicles on the road are becoming more fuel efficient. So this is a problem that has to be addressed in a comprehensive way and I'll lay it squarely at the foot of our Texas legislature at the next session. I hope they do something about it. And we partner with them. Yes. <laughs> yes, sir. Hi, uh, thanks so much uh, for being here. This is not stuff I get to work on, but it's kind of a hobby. Um, so my question is for Mayor Leffingwell. Uh, with the new rail line that's being proposed, uh, the projected costs, as I understand it, per rider are higher than the buses that it would replace. So where are we going to make up that difference? Are we going to cut services, or what's going to happen there? Well, you'll have to ask Cap Capital Metro that question, but I understand there are no plans to cut uh, other bus service. It's not part of the mass transit plan, so we're not fully engaged with that, but I know that Capital Metro recognizes that uh, responsibility. But the rail system uh, carries... 
uh, has a much higher capacity than the bus system. So for the high, higher density routes and the longer haul routes, rail is a more cost-effective solution. Uh, you, you put a, a rail car on a particular route on the nine and a half mile route that we're talking about, you're, you're talking about replacing potentially uh, 20 cars and about 19 buses, something like that. The capacity, and, and you make up the difference in original cost, capital cost, through the O&M cost. Uh, over, over time, it is much cheaper to operate a rail system than a bus system. A quick little follow-up to that. In the late 1980s, early 90s, uh, Los Angeles had, had built and was continuing to build both a subway and a light rail. Uh, there was a suit filed on behalf of bus riders who was able to convince a federal judge that to fund the newer systems, they had actually removed routes that were serving people who had no other alternatives. And the federal judge actually basically took over the, the system and ordered them to, to put it back. Uh, Mayor, have you heard any conversations, or, or, is, there, or is there already a, an articulated commitment that that will not happen? Well, there is an articulated commitment that that won't happen, and the governance of, of the proposed mass transit system, which does include some buses, by the way, uh, bus rapid transit and express buses, as well as uh, several different forms of rail, uh, that, will, that organization will be governed separately. The plan is for that to be... Uh, Overall governance will be done jointly by the city of Austin, which will be furnishing along with the federal government. And by the way, that's an important point. We're leveraging $600 million worth of uh, federal money here that we, if we don't get it, it will go someplace else to, to another city. But uh, that, is that organization is going to be funded by the city, and the, the O&M part uh, has already been analyzed by Capital Metro, $22 million a year approximately. Uh, a relatively small part of their overall $170 million or so budget. They already operate one uh, uh, rail line anyway, but it'll be jointly governed by the city and by Capital Metro, separate organization. All right, thank you. Yes, sir. Okay, uh, this is for the uh, mayors of the cities in Texas. Um, so we've already seen that Uber and Lyft have provided more cost-effective measures for um, for transporting citizens around without using their own cars. So do you think that instead of building a rail which um, which ladens a city with debt like $1.4 billion after everything's said and done here, um, do you think that instead privatizing our bus systems to allow competition there would lower costs and allow for more effective transportation um, within our larger cities? Uh, obviously, uh, Uber can make a significant contribution to our mobility here in Austin and I'm sure the other cities as well, but we still need it all. Uh, some of you may have heard it actually on NPR a few months ago that an engineer from the Texas Transportation Institute said, looking at Central Texas, if you do everything, everything that's in your Campo plan, your 2035 plan, mm -hmm. You will, it will, that commute from Austin to Round Rock will still transition to two and a half hours in 2040. So it's not one or the other, it's both. Right, and I wasn't advocating for one or the other. I was saying instead of building this rail that would take away some lane space for cars, I was saying would you instead shift to a more like competitive way of, trans, uh, a competitive mode of transportation as we've seen within the cab industry? That's, well, we, that's what we, I was asking. We have tried very hard to minimize the effect of taking lanes out of traffic. Mm 
Mm -hmm. For example, about half of the route is along East Riverside Drive. The right-of-way for the train will be between lanes. There, there is a, there's a grassy median between uh, the existing lanes, and so it won't take any lanes out of East Riverside Drive. As it crosses Ladybird Lake, this is the plan, it will use Trinity Street and basically take out one lane and uh, a, a, a lane of parking. Okay. Trinity Street is lightly traveled. We specifically avoided major arterial roads with this mm -hmm. so as to minimize the impact that you're talking about. Okay. I think we do have time for, for one more. Quick question for the mayor, especially Austin. What are the advantages of rail over bus rapid transit? Well, the big advantage is it has much more capacity. So if you have a high capacity route, which we anticipate this to be, by the way, if everything goes like clockwork, it'll be built in 2222. So it's still a few years away. But by the time it is built, it will not be suitable for a bus rapid transit because operating on surface lanes, you're obviously crossing streets. Uh, you would have several times more buses per minute than, or per period than you do trains. So it would have a much more detrimental effect on surface traffic, car traffic, and other traffic than uh, trains would. Trains would be able to carry that capacity at a lesser interval. I want to thank our panelists and thank all of you for coming. Thank you. See you next year.